We've just sang and prayed to ask for God's help through his spirit to understand and be changed by what we hear in his word. Let me read from Colossians 4, verse 2 to 18. It's found on page number 1184 in the Pew Bibles. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for your message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as is Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is also called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends his greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, See that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you turn to read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Folks, if you keep that passage open before you, that would be great. So we've come to the end of our studies in Colossians. How was it for you? I got an email from a member of the congregation who shared a little bit of how this part of God's Word had been doing real work in their family. Got this about 10 days ago. Hi, Christoph. I thought I would share on a precious moment I had discussing my day with the kids when I was driving home from school last week. The conversation turned at one point to mental health issues, including how many teenagers these days are struggling at school and with life in general. One of the kids talked about how grateful they were that they had a faith and an identity in Christ which helped them cope with school pressures. 
They talked about how difficult it seemed for other students who didn't have that. We had a great chat about that and how important it was to reflect on the truth that we are loved and accepted because we are in Christ. Very Colossians. It just shows how the message filters through all ages when it is clearly and consistently preached and discussed in church, throughout our youth ministries, as well as at home. I thought I'd share that with you as an encouragement to, to hear how uh, some parents and their, their kids are connecting with God's Word here in church, but also in their conversations uh, in, in youth ministries and, and then at home. So uh, it's always lovely to see God's Word doing its work in people's lives. This morning, we're looking at Colossians one last time together, Colossians 4, and we're going to see a couple of different things. Uh, we're going to see Paul's team ministry, and then we're going to see how we can live the resurrection in the world. So I'm going to start actually at the end of the chapter with the stuff about Paul's uh, team ministry. He spends the, the last verses in his chapter, uh, or, or in his letter, sending greetings uh, and sharing news from his ministry team. Um, I feel sorry for Emma who had to read it because she had 11 different names in there. Uh, Emma was asking me, how do you, you know, she was checking her pronunciation with me and I was saying, Emma, listen, none of us know how to pronounce these. Just say it whatever way you want and it'll, it'll, it'll be all right. So uh, unless you know better, I thought Emma did a, a great job with those 11 names. It's interesting, isn't it? Paul can't finish a letter to a bunch of people without talking about a lot of other people. He knows that life with Jesus isn't a solo activity. He's not a lone ranger. He is somebody who builds teams around him. Um, if you, you notice, actually, the, these aren't just friendships. I think they are friendships. But if you look at the, the flavor of what Paul's written about them, you'll see that they're, they're gospel friendships. People who together are sharing in the work of, of, of bringing the gospel of Jesus to the world. They're, they're Paul's co-workers, a lot of them. So Paul loves building ministry teams. We don't have time to, to think about each of those 11 people. I thought the best thing would be maybe to choose a couple and uh, focus on what Paul says about them. So Archippus there, verse 17, have a look. Paul sends a message to him, he says, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. What ministry? We don't know. I had a look. The commentators can't quite work it out. Uh, there's no real grounds for us knowing what Paul is writing to Archippus about. Don't worry about that. I want you to think, though, about what Paul says about this ministry. Paul wants him to complete it. Maybe that's something you need to hear this morning, an encouragement to keep going in something that you're doing. Maybe you're serving in a youth or children's ministry here in the church, and it just doesn't seem as exciting and as with, with the flow that it, it once had. Or maybe you've been carrying some other responsibility for some time, and, and you're just feeling tired. You're feeling like you can't keep at it. Or, or maybe you have a calling in life beyond the church here. 
um, caring for somebody in your family or, or doing some other good work, uh, I can only imagine uh, what, what kind of responsibilities we carry and we share. But you're struggling to keep going. Paul encourages Archippus to keep going, but not without reminding him that his ministry has been given to him by the Lord. He doesn't just say, knuckle down and work harder at it, it'll come good. He reminds him that the Lord is in this. And folks, that makes all the difference in the world. It's when we understand ourselves as people who are called, called women, called men, called by God to do things, to carry responsibilities. It's when we understand that and, and hold to that that we find ourselves able to, to keep going in ministry. If you're struggling in some sort of ministry this morning, flick back to chapter 1, verse 29. I love what Paul says here about how he works. He talks in chapter 1 about just how he struggles uh, and finds his ministry so demanding. But he says this, To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. One of Paul's big things in Colossians is that we're in Christ and that Christ's in us. So we don't work alone. We don't run on empty. He's in us and he works through us. Archippus, you're working in his power. Keep at it. Let's notice one other name of these 11. Epaphras in verse 12. Epaphras who is one of you and a servant of Jesus Christ, sends greetings. You may or may not remember this. Epaphras is actually the guy who started the church in Colossae. Paul, when he was ministering in Ephesus, 170 kilometers west of Colossae, met Epaphras. And he sent Epaphras then to go and plant a church in Colossae and in the nearby spa towns of Laodicea and Herapolis. At the time when Paul writes his letter to Colossae, Epaphras isn't in Colossae. But yet Paul's able to say about him, verse 13, I vouch for him that he's working hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Herapolis. Wait a second, Paul. How, how can he be working hard for them if he's not there? <laughs> what's, what's he doing uh, that's going to be any use to them? Look at verse 12. He's always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I'll talk more about the importance of prayer in a moment, but let's notice for a second what it is that Epaphras chooses to pray for. Flick back with me to chapter 1 again, and you'll notice that Epaphras here is praying for exactly the same thing that Paul is praying for, for the guys in Colossae. In chapter 1, verse 9, Paul told the Colossians, we haven't stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. Epaphras too is praying that they'll be filled with, that they'll get God's will. So both Epaphras and Paul I'm going to say Epaphras, who, who knows what these people need, and Paul, who knows what they need, and actually any pastor who knows what people need, 
will share in this same prayer. That we'll all understand the will of God. That we'll get God and that we'll understand his plans for us. What, what is this will of God that Paul, Epaphras, and any other good pastor wants his people to get? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of how God came to rescue us and then to inhabit us and to make us his vehicles in the world. Do you remember from the earlier in our series how this gospel was, was shared with the guys in Colossae, how they needed to hear it? They had been told by their culture, by religious people inside their church, that they, they weren't enough, that they weren't good enough. On the one hand, did their pagan neighbors saying to them, you've left behind all our Greco-Roman gods, and now all you've got left is this, this crucified Galilean. Who's going to help you with your family problems? Who are you going to go to when you've got money issues? Only one God? That's not enough. You, you don't have enough. And on the other hand, they had the, the Jewish uh, religious uh, figures inside the church, and they were putting pressure on them too. They were saying, yeah, it's great that you've heard about Jesus, but that's not enough. You've got to go further than that, beyond Jesus. You've got to get into the Jewish law You've got to keep a kosher diet. You've got to observe Jewish holy days. You've got to practice circumcision. Without that, you're not enough. Pressures from the culture. Pressures from inside the church. Very different pressures, but actually all come under the same point. You're not enough. Paul's been writing to these Colossian Christians just as they're feeling the pressure to either go back to their pagan culture or to move sideways into to Jewish uh, religious rules. And he says, no, don't even think of it. You have enough and you are enough in Jesus Christ. It, it's in the middle part of his letter that he really goes to town on this and spells it out. Chapter 2, verse 17, he says, you don't need to go back to your pagan Greco-Roman gods. Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities. He's made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. There's not a single power or authority in the world or in the universe that Jesus Christ hasn't triumphed over. He is over them all. You don't need to come under the Jewish law, he says. Chapter 2, verse 14 Paul says that Jesus has already fulfilled the law for them. He's canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Folks, we've got to get this. The cross of Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. There is no moral obligation that can be held over you or over me. Jesus Christ has fulfilled it. If you're in him, you're not under the law. Jesus Christ has defeated the powers. There's no 
legal pressure, social pressure, no pressure in this world, no power that you need to be under. He's triumphed over them all, and in him you're free. That's the message of Colossians. In Christ, we're enough. I've heard some people talking about this, and I've seen a sense that for some of us there are some lights going on that hadn't been on before. That's good. That's what the gospel does. It changes everything. It changes how we think about ourselves and how we live in the world. Folks, we've talked for a good bit of our time this morning so far about Paul's ministry team And as we've thought about these couple of characters, we've been reminded about a couple of things that we learned on our way through Colossians. I want to spend the last few moments letting Paul wrap up what he's really been doing since chapter 3, verse 12. Once he gets to chapter 3, verse 12, the argument of his letter is mostly over, and he, he tells us how we can live in the light of what he's said up to that point. Do you remember, he says he wants us to live the resurrection. He wants us to do it in the church. He wants to do it in our homes. He wants us to do it in our workplace. Um, A couple of weeks ago, we thought about him, how, how we do that in the church. Monty helped us last week think about how we do that at home and in our workplace. By the way, if you didn't hear that, it was a quite brilliant sermon, and I'd encourage you to get onto the podcast and, and fill that gap in, in your Colossians learning. Today, for a few minutes, how to live it in the world. Paul says two things, I think. He says, pray and take your chances. Pray and take your chances. Paul asks them to pray. Um, He's not shy about asking them to pray for him. Verse 4 there, if you look at it. Pray for us too that God may open a door for a message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Paul prays for three things. That there will be an open door for the gospel to be proclaimed and that he, he will actually be clear as he proclaims it. He wants people to pray for that, all of that. I know that a lot of people here either deliberately set aside time where they, they will pray for, for the work in the church here, or, or else maybe less deliberately, but, but certainly actively you, you care about what God's doing here and, and you pray, you have a prayerful heart and attitude that God would use our, our times together here to change people's lives. I started our sermon by talking about how, how one family has, has seen the, the fruit of that. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been talking to at least two people that sprang to mind very quickly. Uh, a young man who's been coming to church the last few months and, and just needs to know more, needs to know about this, this gospel of Jesus Christ, this invitation to be in Christ and to, to live a life with him. A young woman who hadn't been going to church previously at all 
somebody, a member of ours in the church who's a colleague of hers in work, invited her along, and now she's coming. Wants to keep coming. Coming to be in the place where God's word is taught. Folks, God is, is using his, his word whenever we preach it and reflect on it here to change people's lives. That, that's what happens when God's word's preached, when we try to preach it clearly. But when we pray, when we all care about that and all bring that together to God. So maybe I could invite you to keep praying for Stephen and Monty and myself and anyone else who comes here to, to bring God's word. Pray that, that the word would do its work. We've noticed there how Paul invites the folks in Colossae to pray for him, but, but actually we jumped over something. He invited them to pray for themselves first. Look at verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. For these in Christ Christians, these people who are now trying to live out the resurrection life of Jesus, that's not just a job for, for ministers or missionaries, it's for everyone. So Paul wants everyone to enter into this, but he doesn't want us to do it in our own strength. Don't just rush out there into the street trying to, to win people for Jesus or to talk to your neighbors about the gospel. You see, God goes before us. He's at the center of everything. We only ever join him in what he's already doing. And so we pray. There's a lovely threefold dynamic here in, in Paul's instruction about prayer. He says, first of all, we pray. We look for God's involvement and in his intervention. And then we watch Pray and then watch. Let, let's notice what God's doing to answer the prayers we've already prayed. And then thirdly, we're thankful. If you've ever seen this happen, you'll know how powerful it is. I pray for something. I want God to do something. And maybe I've prayed for it for weeks or months or, or longer. And he finally does something. So he, I've prayed, but I've also watched and I've noticed that he's done something and it, it does something here. We think, wow, he, he really is there. He really has heard me. He's really answered my prayers and he really is working in the world. Folks, let's, let's enter into this life, this prayerful life, living the resurrection. In verses five to six, Paul invites the Colossians to the second part, I think, of what he wants them to do. He says, make the most of every opportunity, verse 5. He actually says three related things. Be wise in the way you act to outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. For, for this morning, I'm going to treat the, the make the most of every opportunity as the key one. I think uh, it seems to me that the other two ideas are related and that they support that. If we're making the most of every opportunity, then we're going to be wise in how we uh, deal with outsiders and we're going to let our conversation always be full of grace and seasoned with salt. 
When Paul says, make the most of every opportunity, when you, you read it in the original, he, he has a, a very particular idea in mind, and it's something a bit, he, he wants us to buy up the opportunity. So maybe, uh, I was nearly going to say something very sexist there about, about shopping and, and maybe that the women get this metaphor more than others. You know, you know some people just light up when they, get a bargain when they're able to buy something that excites them. Uh, maybe that's uh, an unfair generalization. Well, let's hold that anyway. It's, it's about buying something up, buying the opportunity. There, there's a, another place where I've heard talk like this that's quite different. Um, when I was reading this, I couldn't help but think of, of a sporting analogy. Um, if you watch, watch sport, I don't watch a whole lot, but enough to notice a wee pattern in how people are talking uh, at football matches and rugby matches. The pundits talk a lot nowadays about the need for a team to be clinical, to take their chances. You know, they'll say, for example, that Man United-Liverpool game was very evenly balanced, but Liverpool were clinical. They are the ones who took their chances. That's what Paul's talking about. Being clinical, taking our chances. We're prayerful, we're watchful, we're, we're, our eyes are open, we're noticing what's going on in our lives and the lives of people around us. And, and we want to, to take a step then, to take the most of every opportunity. Paul says pray and make the most of every opportunity. That's, that's all he tells us, for the most part, about how to live the resurrection in the world. There's plenty to be getting on with though, isn't it? The whole of life, prayed over, paid attention to, and then taking our chances. Victor Hugo's uh, fictional character, the Bishop of Digne, he shows us what this could look like in real life. You might know him, um, Les Miserables, who's, who's seen it in any shape or form it's been, yeah? So you know the story, the bishop, the guy with the candlesticks? So we know him from the, the recent BBC adaptation, that running just a few weeks ago. Uh, we know him from the, the Hugh Jackman musical, a film of 2012, or, or lots, of other, um, lots of other adaptations over the years. What I learned this week, I've never read Hugo's novel. It's one of these guys here, thicker than the old telephone directory. Um, one day I will read it, but I haven't read it yet. What I learned this week is that the candlestick incident, do people know about the candlestick incident? No, maybe not. So Jean Valjean, an escaped convict, comes to a, a town and he seeks refuge and he ends up staying in the bishop's house overnight. Very dangerous thing to invite a, a, a convicted convict uh, into your home, but the bishop seems to be up for that kind of thing and just invites him in. Wakes up in the morning and discovers that the convict is gone, sews all his silver cutlery, and... Um, you get this sense from the bishop that he's not too bothered. It's all right. A couple of hours later, the local police arrive with the convict uh, under their care, with the, the silver cutlery, 
and they, they present the convict and the cutlery and they say, there he is, bishop. He's robbed you. Do you want to press charges and we'll, we'll deal with him? And the bishop says, press charges? No, I'm cross with Jean Valjean. And he pulls the candlesticks off the mantelpiece and he says, you took the cutlery but you forgot to take the candlesticks. And he gives him the candlesticks and Jean Valjean walks free with more silver than any man could possibly carry because it's all grace in this bishop's mind. Whenever I watched the movies, I thought, wow, you know, what a brilliant thing the bishop has done. It just felt like one of those once-in-a-lifetime acts that just comes out of the blue. Here's what I didn't know that I learned this week. The bishop does that stuff all the time. That's who he is. If you read uh, Les Miserables, read the full novel, Victor Hugo gives us 50 pages at the start of the book about this bishop, and he's a legend. He is amazing. He gives away 85% of his income. He has a palace in the town because that's what bishops have. He gives it away so that there can be a bigger hospital for the people. One day he discovers that he's entitled to a travel allowance. He says, no, I don't need that. I'll give that away to the poor and I'll keep riding my donkey as I have been doing up until now. The candlesticks. It looks like he made the most of one opportunity. No, he's, this guy's making the most of every opportunity. Any chance to, to show the grace of God, any chance to take a step and to live for God's glory, he's made it his lifetime's passion to live that way. Is it any wonder that God can use him to turn around this escaped convict. Any wonder that Jean Valjean's life is never the same again. We want to live the resurrection. We want to live this new life that Jesus is putting inside us. So let's pray and pray and pray and then take our opportunities. We've come to the end of this book of Colossians and I asked you, how, how's it been for you? I'll tell you how it's been for me. It's been God's grace to me. His very word into my heart. I've been glad to hear it. In Christ you are enough. Now continue in Christ and live for my glory. Since then, you were raised with Christ. Set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your hearts Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. You died.
and your life is now hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear also with him in glory. Folks, if you're in Christ, this is the bit that we mustn't lose from Colossians. You can forget a lot of it, I'm sure. You've died. You're raised. You're seated. You're in Christ. And he sends you now into your home and into your workplace, into this church and into his world. And he wants you to live the resurrected life. Go now with a smile on your face and enjoy it.